0: intense huh good stuff Uh, just a brief announcement before we get into our time in God's Word in the book of Judges and it's this it's about the men's retreat man I've got good news and bad news about the upcoming retreat the bad news is tomorrow is the deadline to register the good news is tomorrow's the deadline to register you've still got time so uh, I checked with your wife and and your boss this morning on the way and it's crazy and man they said you were actually available to go So, it's good news, right? All right, you can register in the lobby or online. Love to have you this coming Friday night and then Saturday morning. So, all, all the information should be there. Let's get into our time now in God's Word. We're in the book of Judges, as you see, in chapter 15, about, talking about the story this morning of Samson. We'll be looking at chapter 15, verses 9 through 20, and then chapter 16, verses 25 through 30. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Judges 15, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out nearly high. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes in his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. And Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Chapter 16, verse 25. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison And he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes." Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And that's God's word this morning. It is actually, that's God's word, believe it or not, hard to believe, that story, um, begin here. You know, it's a good time to be a comic book superhero these days, isn't it? If you were a comic book superhero, you probably have your own movie too. Even if you hate superhero movies, as I know some of you do, uh, you know, there's so many of them being made, it feels like you're just going to stumble into one almost by accident. You know, you go for one movie, you end up in seeing something of the galaxy or whatever, just because by sheer volume, they're there. Now for better for worse these movies these characters are our culture's modern day myth cycles and looking at them gives us some insight into how our culture is changing let me just give you one example superman may have heard of him was the first real superhero as we would consider them today he was created in 1939 he was seen to embody truth justice and what American Way, all right. Comic scholar, there are such things apparently, comic scholar Roger Saban saw in Superman as a reflection, quote, of the liberal idealism of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal with Schuster and Siegel initially portraying Superman as a champion to a variety of social causes. See, Superman is good here. He is strong. He protects the weak. He, he doesn't lie. He uses minimal violence. And except for kryptonite, which of course doesn't even exist on Earth, he is completely invulnerable. He is wanted. He is needed. He is appreciated. He is a hero which is why today we can barely stand him as he was originally created. In the comics, he has rejected his American citizenship. More recently, he's depicted as having sex with Lois Lane and fathering a child with her out of wedlock. Uh, Lois, back in 2006's Superman Returns, famously proclaimed, the world doesn't need a savior, and neither do I. And even in Man of Steel, sort of the latest incarnation, he only wins when he snaps the neck of his opponent. You say, you know, but he had to. Well, of course he had to. Why? The writers wrote it that way. You say, well, you know, we can relate to a Superman like that. And, of course, the same goes for Batman today. He's no longer in blue and gray tights. Some of you would say, praise the Lord, right? Running around, you know, telling jokes in his fancy car, but he's full of angst, and he's constantly tormented by his past. He dresses only in black or very, very dark gray, for those of you who have seen the Lego movie. With your kids. Iron Man saves the world, but he's a borderline alcoholic womanizer. The the guardians of the galaxy are, are a galaxy of criminals, but they save the universe. Maleficent used to be an evil witch, now she's given a backstory, and who's the noble king before is now the bad guy. You root against now. See. Idealizing the noble hero is out. Idolizing the flawed antihero is in. Why? Walter Truett Anderson, a political scientist, put it like this. He said, quote, We no longer look for salvation in unblemished heroes. We want people who are complex, dependent, and changeable. Postmodern psychology sees the individual as more changeable than stable. We don't want one dominant authority to tell us what to do. He's saying today, we like the anti hero, the, the one who breaks all the rules in, in his own personal quest. We say, now who cares about duty, right? We want authenticity, we want a superhero who'll just keep it real. Mother Teresa of Calcutta was a hero to many. You may know she risked her life for the sick and dying of India. And when she died, I think, believe it was in 1997, around the same tam- time she died, Princess Diana of Wales died. And when they died around the same time, there were these surprising, scathing criticisms of Mother Teresa. And there was this kind of surprising response about Princess Diana. Carol Gilligan wrote an essay in the New York Times. She said this, she said, What I find remarkable about Diana is that she reached out because she wanted a connection with others. Not to turn herself into a model of virtue or a martyr. As she found her way out of secrecy and isolation, as she left a marriage that was not loving and struggled with the realities of joint custody and divorce, she groped for a way of living that would include pleasure. She wanted to have a good time. I think this is why so many women and also men feel so strongly that Diana was reaching publicly for some vital truths. Like Eve, she had come to know both good and evil and shared that knowledge. But unlike Eve, she was resisting shame and refusing to hide. In fact, it was a relief to everyone to know that Diana was not perfect. Now, that's the celebration... Of the anti hero, someone who breaks all the rules and follows their own path no matter what. Now, you may think, I know what's coming. You know, you know Morgan, you're a minister, right? You're, you're a pastor. You're about to say, How terrible is this, right? Well, you're about to say, Morgan, we need to reject the anti hero and hero hatred and return to good moral values. You're about to say, Morgan, well, you know, uh, Morgan, you're about to say, We need to return to the original Superman. Surprise! Put it like this. In the words of Tim Keller, he said, Neither hero worship nor hero deconstruction will we be able to bear. We will not be able to bear in our personal psychology or our corporate sociology. They will both destroy us. Well, what does that mean? It means that hero worship and hero deconstruction are both flawed ways of looking at the world. But you say, you know, Morgan, aren't Christians supposed to, you know, look up to heroes and be big proponents of moral values and right and wrong and try to live like heroes? Yes, but not how you think. What we need this morning, and may I suggest, because I will, what will change your life is not hero worship on one hand or hero deconstruction on the other. But what's called hero vision seeing a different hero altogether how do we get it well strangely enough by looking at the story of samson who some people have seen as sort of an old testament version of superman you know he's sort of like the superman in the old testament he flies around he's invulnerable only his hair is the kryptonite you know you cut it he's dead but samson was no hero no hero at all he was deeply flawed and yet in the end we see that god has totally redeemed samson's life And rescues a nation through him. You say, how can that be? Well, because of the power and the grace of a greater hero whose story we will see today by looking not at necessarily, but through the story of Samson. By looking at this morning, number one, divine provocation two, a nation's assimilation. And number three, the victorious defeat. Let's begin here and see how we can get this hero vision by looking at number one, divine provocation. We'll begin here in the text in verse 9 of chapter 15. It says, the Philistines went up and they camped in Judah. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? The Philistines said, we've come to take Samson prisoner to do to him as he did to us. So the question is, well, what had Samson done to them? Well, the previous chapter, we meet Samson as a grown man. He's now the judge, the leader of Israel. He's overriding his parents' authority and wisdom and going to marry a Philistine woman. The Philistines were the very people who had enslaved his own. And on his way to marry the woman, he goes through a vineyard. And there a lion attacks him. He overpowers the lion. He kills it inside the lion's dead body, grows honeycomb a bit later. Samson partakes of that on his way back again. Uh, And and when he gets to the wedding feast, he bets the 30 friends of his his bride that they can't figure out the riddle that he's made up about the lion and the honey and boasting in his own strength of course they can't figure it out they accept the bet then they pressure his wife to get samson to reveal the answer to her he does samson loses the bet and he's so enraged he goes out and in response murders all 30 of them and plunders their bodies then he's so irritated with his wife he abandons her and abandons her for so long that ultimately she remarries. When he goes to take her back from her father's house and the father refuses, Samson turns into a one-man terrorist. And at night he burns down the fields of the Philistines in all their orchards and vineyards. So when the Philistines find out that they've done that, what do they do? Verse 6. So the Philistines went up and burned her, that's Samson's wife, and her father to death. And so how does Samson, the judge of Israel, respond Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. That's what Samson had done. And that's why the Philistines have now come over into Israel and demand that the Israelites give up their leader so they can do to Samson as he has done to them. But of course, he escapes, as we read. He goes on a killing spree. He kills a thousand of them with a jawbone of a donkey, and then mocks the people that he's killed. After this, he goes back to Philistine territory. He sleeps with a prostitute. After he's done with her, he uproots the city gates of Gaza, carries them on his shoulders at the top of a nearby mountain, plants them on top of the mountain so the whole city can see it and be taunted by it. You know, kind of like an 11th century B.C. touchdown dance. You know, he's sort of gloating there. Murder, revenge, prostitution arson ego taunting dishonoring his parents stealing i mean are there any commandments left to break for samson it's like he's got a checklist of the commandments you know he wakes up every day trying to break a record for commandment breaking he's like nope well, i haven't tried that one today i think i'll do that i'm feeling kind of chippy irritable maybe i'll go burn down some property see how that makes me feel see he's impulsive right unteachable Totally out of control, and yet, the narrative tells us time and again that God is at work through Samson's life. Why can Samson kill the lion? Chapter 14, verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Why can he strike down the the 30 Philistines and plunder them? The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. How can he strike down the Philistines with a donkey's jawbone? You're getting the picture. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. How can this be? One verse, Judges fourteen four, tells us how. It says, his parents did not know that all this, say all of this, was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. See, God was at work to save his people by divinely provoking them to set them free from the power that enslaved them, not just in spite of, but through Samson's sin. In other words, If the sin of Samson is all God's got to work with, he can use that too. He can use that too. But we should ask, why does God do this? How can God do this? I mean, why does he use such broken people to accomplish his will and get his work done? I mean, shouldn't he only use and work with and bless and move through, you know, the good people? Years ago, I worked for a Samson. This man was a pastor, and he was so strong and powerful uh, that he could walk in any NFL and NBA locker room and on the spot lead to Christ otherwise untouchable professional athletes. Because of his strength and gifting, he formed a ministry around that and extended it to college athletes, through which I became a Christian. He was so successful for so many years, accumulated quite a bit of money. Fortunately, he used a bit of that illegally. He was unfaithful to his wife. Uh, and he took advantage of and left bankrupt. Ultimately, many of the very men he had pulled out of the hell hole of their lives. And a hell hole it was. We saw countless, you know, men there who were dating prostitutes come to faith in Christ. Violent men abusers, serial adulterers lifted out and gloriously redeemed. And more than that, even when the Spirit of the Lord came on him, we saw legitimate miracles. Uh, I remember time after time seeing an NFL player go down with what appeared to be a season Ending injury. This man would go out and pray for them, and the very next week they're back out on the field, leaving the announcer stunned. I mean, it got to be like a joke in the office. We'd hear these announcers say, "I can't believe it. What happened to him? Looked like they were out for the season. Now they're back. What happened?" Say, "I know. I know what happened. The spirit of the Lord had come upon this man in power. But his treatment of many, other, many others, including myself, was horrible. Cruelty toward many others was legendary. But do you know what happened?" One of my many deep and perhaps my deepest character flaw deriving a sense of self-worth from my performance, I could never have seen or be delivered from, if not for him and his cruelty, if I had never been forced to see and know that I, same as you as a person, am separate from my performance, ultimately worth uh, Christ's sacrifice, if I were never forced to do the hard work of diving down into the bottom of my soul and finding a firm foothold on the promises of God, I never would have made it in life or ministry what happened? The sin of a Samson set me free. See? God was seeking an occasion to deliver me, and he's seeking an occasion to deliver you through a Samson in your own life. What if, what if this morning, what if the person who broke your heart, ruined your business, sliced up your reputation? Did something horrible to you. Was a kind even of a Samson for you. A delivery you would never have chosen on your own. Come to set you free from something you could never possibly see otherwise. Your pride, judgmentalism, insecurity lack of mercy see or ob- your obedience to god in some area listen this doesn't excuse anyone's sin and god does and will hold every person accountable as we'll see but the point is this it's what god spoke deeply into my heart this week he said morgan my people try so hard to escape from their samsons but i want to deliver them through them through their samsons he ask why is this here's why Because God cares more about who you're becoming than anything else. God cares about the kind of person you are today. He cares so deeply about the condition of your soul right now that he will even risk his reputation in the world on flawed people, including you and me. See, in the end, you can't be told you're flawed. You can only be shown your flaws, and some of you spouses are elbowing each other right now. Yeah, that's right. I told you, won't well, listen to me. Listen to him, right? And showing a person their flaws takes time. Takes time. What if God loved you enough right now to send a Samson into your life—a boss, a spouse, a child, a coworker, the person in your community group, or he with whom you serve in promised land? To divinely provoke your heart and deliver you from something you couldn't otherwise see that would ultimately devour you in the end. See, that's what he's doing. And that's what he's doing right here with Samson. You say, well, how can you know this? Well, look at the nation of Israel. What's happened to them? Number two, they have become assimilated. A nation's becoming assimilated. What do I mean? I mean this, after the Philistines come to the leaders of Israel... And they demand that Samson's handed over to them. The only person, by the way, who's got the power to deliver them. This is what the people of Israel do. It says, then how many? 3,000. They're not taking any chances with Samson, right? 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave. And they said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Now, have you noticed something missing here? There's something not happening here. That has happened in all the other judges' cycles up at this point in the book. If you'll notice, the people here are not crying out for rescue from their oppression. There's no resistance to being slaves. They're actually coming out in force to make Samson stop trying to save them. What's happening? What's happening is at this very moment, the nation of Israel, historians said, have said, is on the verge of extinction. In the past, they fought back. But now, they've given up. Why? Because of the nature of the evil the Philistines brought in was far more enslaving than any other kind of evil. What was it? It wasn't violence or abuse or threats. A person, a culture will stand up against that many times. It was this. Cultural assimilation. The Philistines were masters of cultural assimilation. Become like us, they would say. You don't need to worship Yahweh alone. No such thing as one true God. No need to obey his commands. He's just one of many gods, right? Live where you want, worship how you want, marry whom you want, however you choose. It's all up to you. And because, therefore, the values of the people of God had stopped conflicting with the values of the culture around them, they ceased to be different. Their nation is on the verge of extinction. And by the way, if we're not careful, the same can be true of us today as well in God's church. You ask how so? Well, we can be assimilated culturally sort of one way in two parts. First, the church can be assimilated into what we'll call, for the sake of convenience, broadly liberal culture today. Liberalism, which prizes personal choice, freedom, the rejection of absolute truth, demands absolute tolerance of every choice and lifestyle. Culturally liberal churches adapt the Bible's sex ethics to reflect modern sensibilities. They don't practice church discipline. They don't preach Christ as the only way to salvation. Culturally liberal churches are strong. Strongly therapeutic, supportive, but no one's ever warned of the dangers of God's judgment. If these churches preach judgment, accountability, moral values, that God cares about the plight and the rights of the unborn, ah, there'd be conflict. On the other hand, churches in America America can be assimilated in what we'll call broadly conservative culture, which is where the good old days are idealized, never mind what those good old days actually included conservative churches comprise one's own race culture where authority in these churches never question women aren't valued or promoted culturally conservative churches can make an idol out of marriage and marriage life family life so much so that singles and single parents can feel like second class citizens if these churches preached about racism systemic injustice the obligation the bible gives us to do justice to the poor oh there would be there'll be riots right and just in case by the way you're wondering you're questioning the reality of systemic evil Just look right here in the passage. I mean, here the leaders have conspired to hand over the nation and its leader to their enemy, see. Systemic injustice exists in our nation today. And, of course, we've seen this again over the last couple of weeks by by means of a disproportionate number of unarmed African-American men being shot down right or at least unjustly harassed listen i host a relatively diverse community group at my home and do you know none of the white people there have ever been pulled over and harassed in my neighborhood but multiple members of the african-american community in my community group have been huh and they're only carrying bibles or at least bibles on their phones right bible on their phones (laughs) like some of you do listen if you're here and you're african-american you've ever been unjustly harassed by police would you just raise your hand for a moment yeah Look around the room for a second. Almost every close African-American friend I have has been, see. Now, if you're here listening, you may be asking, what about our law enforcement? I, listen, I deeply appreciate our law enforcement. They risk their lives for us. They got a lot more guts than I have. They just do. Deeply appreciate them. They put their lives on the line every day for us. But I also asked an APD officer as a part of this church about this little social experiment, how he felt about it. And he's not only endorsed it, but said, I hope it would be a small part of bringing awareness and healing to this issue. Listen, I know this is uncomfortable. God, it's uncomfortable for me by staring at me. air's all gone out of the room. <laughs> but let's just face it. If I adopted, if Carrie and I adopted an African-American boy today, you think my conversation with him about dealing with the police system will be different than my conversation with my other three sons? i about dealing with the police system. You bet it would. You bet it would, see. Listen, this is just challenging. It's not simple. It's going to require a lot of dialogue among us as a people in our homes, in our community groups, and primarily with people who just don't look like us. Listen, something happens in the news and the media. Listen, don't, don't just talk out loud at the TV. Pick up and call the five people who are closest to you of a different ethnic background. And if you can't, you may not want to process it by yourself, see. It goes for all of us, no matter where we're coming from. The point is this. If we've ceased to have any kind of conflict with our culture, see, we've been assimilated. Actually, the conflict reveals, thank goodness, we're alive. We're breathing. The church has got a heartbeat, right? And Israel here has been almost totally culturally assimilated. They're on the verge of extinction. And the nation, the people through whom God promised to rescue the world, is about to be lost. See, they don't resist. They don't cry out. So God sends Samson to wake him up and deliver them to the conflict he brings. And what do these people do when their deliverer shows up? They say, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want your salvation. But it's only, oh, it's so great. It's only because they hand him over that they're delivered and saved in the end. They're freed from the Philistines because they deliver him over. And the nation endures. You say, well, that's an incredible story. Yeah, it is. So what does it mean? Well, it shows us this, that hero worship on one hand can't help us. All heroes are flawed, but hero deconstruction won't help us. The getting rid of all moral values, on the other hand, won't help us either. We'll only be assimilated and look like the cultural around us. No. We need another kind of hero altogether. Have a kind of hero vision. How do we get it? Through seeing number three, finally, a victorious defeat. Victorious defeat. Now, if you know the story, you may know what happens next. Samson falls in love again with yet another Philistine woman. This time her name is... Yeah, Delilah. And when the Philistines find out their lovers, they pressure her to pressure him to reveal the secret of his strength. He lies to her at first, that it's this or that. But in the end, he reveals their secret. He says, if my hair is cut, my strength will be gone. And that's exactly what happens to him one night while he sleeps in her bed. But something strange is going on. I don't know if you've caught it before. The Bible tells us that Samson's strength left him But then he woke up thinking it would still be there. In other words, he woke up thinking that nothing would have changed. He knew his hair would be gone after all. Every other thing he would ever told Delilah, she had tried on him. He knew she was going to cut his hair while he slept. I mean, for crying out loud, he fell asleep with his head in her lap, it says. Yet he still believed with his hair gone, he would have his strength. What's happening? What's happening is this, that God had left Samson, though he didn't know it. You say, but when his hair was cut, right? The Nazarite vow was broken. A Nazarite vow was a vow people in Israel took not to drink alcohol, to touch dead bodies, or to have their hair cut. But listen, he had broken that vow a long time ago. I mean, thousands of dead bodies he had heaped up, right? Made fast time to get to the local vineyard to drink, right? He'd broken his vow so many times he'd lost count. Why should this time be any different? He didn't believe it would be. Samson was assuming, see, he could call himself a follower of God, Live however he wanted and that he could get away with it. See, what's that? I look at a little pornography. Nothing happened. What's that? I cheated on my taxes, didn't get caught. What's that? I overwork, neglect my family. They seem okay. What's that? God doesn't really mean don't have sex outside of marriage. God doesn't really mean I have to serve the poor. God doesn't really mean I have to obey him. See, these are frightening words in the Bible. Though Samson didn't know it, God had left him. See, there comes a point Bible teaches us no matter how much God loves you and he is patient with you, that his hand of protection will come off and you'll be forced to deal with the consequences of your choices. But look, friends, how beautiful this is. For though his servant has abandoned his vow, God still won't abandon his son. Samson's strength is gone. His eyes have been gouged out. He's a slave grinding grain in prison and chains. And one day, Samson's last day, he's brought out to be made sportive in front of thousands of Philistines. And he's about to do something remarkable, not because he's just got hair growing on his head, but because the grace of God is growing in his heart. the final and heartbreaking scene of samson's life we're told he's let out to be mocked. he rests his hands against the pillars of his house where he's being kept and the stage is set and now samson incredibly for only the second recorded time in his life he prays what does he pray it's this he says sovereign lord adonai yahweh remember me please god strengthen me just once more see this is a different samson different samson and for your life to be different today this is where you begin as well first of all he uses two names for god adonai master it means god i acknowledge your rule your right over my life my body my choices next he uses god's covenant name the love name lord it's the word yahweh name yahweh he is asking now by using this and this is what you must ask today if you're in a pit if you need god's deliverance in your life and you failed you need to be asking god is your covenant with me stronger than my failures towards you. Ask it again. God, is your covenant with me stronger than my failures towards you? See, there's humility here. And you see it in his next words. He says, remember me. Why? Because he's a nobody now. He's all alone, forgotten. He's been humbled. He says, finally, please strengthen me. And here now for the first time, he's acknowledging his strength, his power comes not from his hair, not from himself. From his God. And it's for this moment right here, the writer of Hebrews eleven calls him a man who lived by faith. Why? Because Samson now from weakness was made strong. God answers his prayer, Samson Samson's strength returns, the pillars come down, the ruling class of the Philistines is destroyed, and therefore the power over the people was broken. And from this point on, see, the two cultures were permanently divided, never to be joined again. Ask why does this matter? Well, because the true contest, can you see it here, isn't just between Samson and the Philistines. It's between Yahweh, the true God, and Dagon, the false God, and every other false God, and ultimately, about how this God saves. How does this God save, you ask? Like this. Centuries later, there was another deliverer who God raised up for his people, whose birth had also been announced to his mother, and who God so would deliver not just from the enemies on the outside, but from the people's enemies on the inside. But unlike Samson, Jesus Christ did no wrong. No deceit was found in his mouth in order to do violence to any man. Yet the very people God sent him to ultimately handed him over. Yet, it was through the rejection of the Redeemer that God ultimately saved them. Like Samson, Jesus was handed over to his oppressors. Jesus was tortured and chained. Like Samson, Jesus was put on public display to be mocked and asked to perform for his captors. And like Samson, he died with his arms outstretched. Like Samson, Jesus was struck down by his enemy and through his death freed the people. See, and like Samson, catch this, he was a solitary savior. In the book of Judges, God has saved through first an entire army, then down to 10,000 men, then down to 300 men. And now God shows through Samson's life that he could and would save through one, through one, through one who would willingly lay his life down unasked for and alone. There's a difference. When Samson died and was buried, his rule ended, his story ended. But Jesus' burial was only the beginning of his rule. See, unlike Samson, who only ended the lives of his enemies and heaped up their bodies, Jesus died for his enemies, in his enemies' place, and now turns us his enemies. All of us, see, will receive him into his friends and makes us into his body. Of the increase of this king in the Bible says, there'll be no end. You can enter his kingdom. Have the power, the victory of a deliverer come into your life. When you, like Samson, say, oh, Lord, I repent. Change me. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Strengthen me now. Can we pray that this morning, church? Hope we can as we close. Let's pray. Lord, we come, Jesus' name, crying out. Oh, what a beautiful prayer. It came from the lips and the heart of Samson. Lord, would you meet us now as we cry out to you? If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I'm in this kind of a pit and kind of a prison. I've been grinding away. I feel my eyes have been gouged out and in a sense, I'm enslaved to something. If that's you and you're asking for deliverance today, would you cry out, excuse me, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Oh, yes, God. Thank you for these. If that's you, if your hand's raised, would you just say, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. And strengthen me now. Lord, I'm praying. Lord, as our arms go up and stretch out like Samson's, like Christ, we would receive your deliverance in our lives, your freedom, your power, the victorious defeat. Come into us and free us. I thank you for these in Jesus' name. If you're here, you say, you know what, I've got kind of a Samson in my life, a kind of a situation, the sin of a Samson's been pressing me. I've been, I see I've been resisting it, trying to escape it, but I see it's actually come to provoke me and wake me up, set me free. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for your situation. Oh, yes, Lord. Over our lifetime, God, how many Samson's do we push away? Not Never knowing, never seeing, it's really from you. Lord, we just release those people, Lord. You'll hold them accountable. You will deal with them. You swear and promise justice. But yet, you've brought these, allowed these situations into our life to wake us up. We say thank you. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, I'm praying for grace now for these to receive and say yes to you. Yes to you. To be woken up. Be delivered in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.